0: This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello, this is David Rothkopf, your host. Welcome to National Security Magazine, our weekly show where we spend some time with the newsmaker discussing the issues um, that are driving. Uh, important foreign policy and national security uh, decisions in and around Washington. Today we're extremely grateful to be joined by Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, uh, who has been a leading thinker within the Democratic Party on a host of issues. Uh, welcome Senator.
1: Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: I, I'd like to start, uh, if if that's okay. Um, in, in the Middle East, there have been a number of developments, uh, even as recently as this week, in our complicated relationship with the Saudis, um, uh, suggestion by Jeff Bezos's security consultant that perhaps the Saudis um, had uh, spied on him and, and gathered dirt on him. Uh, we've also had, within the past couple of weeks, a decision by the U.S. Department of Energy to share Uh, nuclear um, uh, energy technology with the Saudis, which has been rather controversial, although overshadowed by events. Uh, uh, We clearly continue uh, to uh, live in the shadow of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, In fact, we are recording uh, this episode on the six-month anniversary of that murder. Uh, And uh, the Human catastrophe in Yemen continues. You've been outspoken on the on these issues, uh, and I'm wondering, just to start, what do you think the state of the U.S.-Saudi relationship is today, and perhaps what ought it to be?
1: As uh, as one of the loudest critics of the relationship, I think it probably is is a good idea to you know, remember the the good parts of the relationship. I mean, this is an important economic partnership, whether we like it or not. Saudi oil still matters to us and to the world market. There's a counterterrorism relationship uh, with the Saudis. Uh, We rely on them for uh, information, and uh, we occasionally do partner together in trying to take on uh, some of the radical Sunni groups in the region and around the world. And um, Also, Saudi uh, Arabia has been an important force for good in trying to achieve what is an effective detente today uh, between Gulf states and Israel, uh, something we shouldn't take for granted uh, given the prior regular hostility uh, towards Israel from uh, the Saudis and some of their partners. So, you know, there are are still good, important parts to our relationship, but it's been going south, um, and it's been going south fast. Uh, over the course of the last several years. Uh, at the heart of it is this war in Yemen, as you mentioned. Um, we have um, you know, been unsuccessful in getting the Saudis to change their behavior. They've killed thousands of civilians. They're not serious about the humanitarian catastrophe. And while well, the Houthis have a lot uh, of uh, blame attributed to them with respect to the failure to get a peace process going, um, by and large, over the last three or four years it has been the Saudis who have been the bigger barrier to peace. Uh, the Human rights situation inside Saudi Arabia is getting worse not better I mean Mohammed bin Salman got a lot of attention for letting women drive but then he started locking women up something that Saudis didn't used to do women uh, political activists are now in jail some of them are getting beaten starved electrocuted um, at least one of them is an American resident um, and you know the um, the Khashoggi incident uh, was uh, what captured America's imagination, but was really, you know, just the tip of a much larger iceberg um, that we had been ignoring. Uh, so I think it's time for a reorientation. Uh, I, I think we've got to make it clear to the Saudis that they can't continue to repress um, political dialogue. They can't continue to treat our own residents in the way that they have. They can't murder civilians intentionally in Yemen without some consequences. And you know whether that's a suspension of arms sales or some specific sanctions, uh, Congress has to take some actions because the administration isn't. Um, their conduct has been, you know, bizarre but probably easily explainable. I, I don't think you have to dig into the Mueller report to, you know, figure out that, you know, the Trump family's had a lot of important business connections with the Saudis for a long time. They buy and rent a lot of Trump real estate, and so the Trump family's not going to take them on because that would risk future profits and so congress has to do it um the the, the last uh, i think and and, and most troublesome uh, question about uh, Saudi Arabia and our relationship with them is the role that they play in global Islam. This is really hard for the United States to weigh in on because we don't want to be you know telling a, another religion how to you know how to practice but um, you know the the Sunni extremist groups that threaten the United States at their foundation um, are driven by a brand of Islam that's exported from Saudi Arabia, Salafist Wahhabist Islam. Um, is one of the building blocks of groups like ISIS and uh, as the new york times said in a you know big exposé uh, from a couple of years ago the saudis you know are at the same time Firefighters and arsonists. When it comes to extremism, they they fight the extremists, but they also are exporting a brand of Islam, which uh, unfortunately um, convinces a lot of uh, a, a lot of folks to pervert the religion into something that ends up being very violent. Uh, and we have to raise that issue with them more seriously than we have. So the state of the relationship is. Um, more complicated and, and, and more uh, mixed in result than it ever has been before. And because of that, I think Congress has to step in and do something.
0: Well, the question, of course, is, uh, will they? Uh, as you point out, there is a, a seeming rift between the administration uh, and uh, even some members of the Republican Party and the Congress, uh, uh, because... No matter what the Saudis seem to do, Trump, as you noted, uh, is willing to look the other way and and even reward them. And recently, Mike Pompeo has been doing the same thing. Um, do you think there is enough will within the Republican caucus in the Senate or 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 in the House to actually take an action with regard to Saudi arms sales, for example? that would be contrary to the wishes of the Trump administration?
1: Well, there is, uh, and we know there is because we passed a uh, war powers resolution calling on the United States, actually not calling, requiring the United States to pull out of the military coalition with the Saudis in Yemen with bipartisan support. Um, The the most important question, though, is, is there enough Republican support to be able to overturn a presidential veto? And the answer to that is, for the time being, no. Um, We will pass a resolution pulling the United States out of the Yemen war through the Senate and the House with Republican support. The president will veto it. We will not be able to override the veto if there is another arms sale noticed. And by the way, there has not been, um, in part because the, the president and the administration doesn't want to have an arms sale Uh, debate in Congress. It will fail as well, but again, likely not with enough votes to override a veto. Um, That just shows how hard it is for congress to micromanage foreign policy uh the checks and balances don't work as well on foreign policy when you have to stop things as opposed to domestic policy when you have to initiate things uh from the legislative uh branch um that being said uh, you know i don't think that the stockholm peace negotiations surrounding the civil war in yemen would have happened without the action of congress i think that the mere threat of funding being cut off to the Saudis has pushed them to the table and has convinced the Houthis that the United States can be an honest broker. So it's not, uh, it's not, not worth doing even if you can't get something signed into law or a veto overridden.
0: What was your reaction to the decision regarding the nuclear technology? I mean, it's nonsense.
1: Um, It's absolutely nonsense. The idea that we would um, hand over sensitive nuclear information to the Saudis. And for all of those Iran hawks um, that populate this place, I don't understand um, why they are so naive uh, about uh, how the dynamic works between uh, Riyadh and Tehran. Um, You know, the, the Iranians absolutely pose a threat to Israel. We should take them at their word when they continue to tell the world that they want to wipe Israel off the map. That being said, Um, The missiles um, and the military hardware in Iran are primarily being pointed at Saudi Arabia. And so every time that we up our military assistance to Saudi Arabia, it is a force multiplier inside uh, uh, Iran. It convinces them to buy more stuff, to build more stuff. And so if we start um, a nuclear partnership with uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, that could very likely be what tips – Uh, the Republican Guard back uh, to a dispositive position inside Iran where they restart their nuclear program. And that would be cataclysmic.
0: Right. And pulling out of the JCPOA certainly doesn't help our case in that regard. Uh, But it does cut to one of the core issues here, which is that Uh, an argument within the Trump administration for the support they're giving to the Saudis is the essential role they play in counterbalancing the threat posed by the Iranians. Uh, A related element of that is that the Israelis seem to share this view. um, And both the Israelis and the Saudis would like to see the Iran relationship um, uh, get uh, 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 tougher come to a head. Uh, perhaps there are few who even would seek something more extreme. Um, John Bolton has certainly talked that way in, in the past. Uh, and so the, the 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 question becomes: Do you see the uh, uh, the the coddling of the Saudis on the part of the Trumps um, as something more than just um, ensuring that their nest remains feathered? Uh, but it, but as some as something perhaps more threatening, which is prelude to confrontation with Iran. Well,
1: you know, Iran thrives in these chaotic spaces, and so the more that we incentivize this series of proxy wars between the Saudis and the Iranians, the better Iran does. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, Iran is winning these series of conflicts with uh, the Saudis and the Gulf states. Um, Assad will end up uh, running and ruling most of Syria. The Houthis uh, are still in control of the capital uh, of Yemen. And so as we continue to sell weapons to the Saudis and egg them on, um, the Iranians gain more and more influence. Remember, in Yemen, you know, as you know, the uh, the the Houthis were not in a command and control relationship with the Iranians. There was no long-term historical connection between that tribe uh, and the Iranian government. It's this civil war um, and how long it has persisted. This has driven the Houthis into the arms of the Iranians. Um, And so had we had a policy of getting the Saudis out of that war earlier, rather than egging them on, Iran would be in a much weaker state. Had we um, had a policy of staying out of the civil war in Syria so that it came to a quicker conclusion, Iran would be in a much weaker position there. Um, Their influence would have looked much more like it did before the Civil War than it will when it's done, so uh, I just don't think there's any evidence that you know arming up the Saudis is actually um, making Iran weaker in the region. I think it's doing exactly the opposite. I think it's actually empowering Iran in part because Iran is eating the Saudis lunch um, or, or the the Gulf States' lunch in certain theaters throughout the region.
0: Well, what are those? theaters, um, not where they're eating the Gulf state's lunch, although they're munching perhaps a bit of it, um, but which they've certainly had their way versus um, what many perceived as US interests, uh, has to do with Syria, where the actions of the administration seem to have actually empowered the Iranians and uh, their ability to work with both the Syrian Assad regime and with the Russians. Um, And uh, that, of course, then uh, extends their influence, which has long existed um, in Lebanon, amplifies that. And that gives them more control over that kind of northern uh, arc of the Middle East, which is a strategic sort of play that they've made. Um, And the the, the question becomes, a lot of that pressure falls then on the U.S.-Israeli relationship, where... The president has thrown in very heavily with the prime minister, with one candidate and one party, um, and that prime minister is in a bit of a tough place right now, uh, at least, you know, but not just legally, but also in terms of his reelection. And and I'm t- I'm just wondering how you see the U.S.-Israel relationship in the context of of all these other moving pieces.
1: Well, I mean, the relationship is critical. Uh, They are our most important ally in the region, one of our most important allies in the world. We are heavily invested um, in... Uh, the long-term success and survival of a Jewish state in the Middle East, and that will never change. Uh, At the same time, um, the United States has long stood uh, for uh, a pathway to a two-state solution uh, in which uh, there is a negotiation that ultimately results in a Jewish state and a uh, Palestinian home um, the problem uh, with this current government in uh, Israel, a- as supported by this administration in Washington, uh, is that they are uh, potentially, effectively rendering a two-state solution impossible um, by taking off the table all of these potential um, points of negotiation uh, that would um, uh, that would get us to uh, that. Uh, that that two-state reality, whether it be uh, the location of the U.S. Embassy, the uh, ability for the Palestinians to uh, have a presence in uh, East Jerusalem or the um, state of the uh, Golan Heights. Um, so we have... Um, I think made it much less likely that there's ultimately going to be a two state solution uh, and so it puts some of us in an awkward position where we you know uh, you know support Israel 100% but also support the two state uh, future and that means that you know we are unfortunately uh, forced to be critical of this current Israeli government and the decisions that they've made.
0: Okay if I may I'd like to move to a different part of the world you very early on were a leader on the Hill uh, at uh, addressing issues like countering uh, foreign propaganda disinformation, which you um, had, had created some legislation on. This was back in 2016 in the context of that election. Um, and uh, clearly Russian involvement in that election has been quite an ongoing story. Yet here we are two years later um, and the president of the United States, as recently as today, uh, suggested that launching an investigation into this Russian involvement was illegal and treasonous. Um, and uh, furthermore, and I think just as troubling, uh, the administration has taken a number of steps to uh, limit the ability to prepare for any future uh, intervention uh, that might be undertaken by uh, the Russians or others, uh, uh, underfunding, uh, unfunding some elements of the government that are responsible for that, impeding others. Um, and, And so I just was wondering what your outlook on all of this was from the perspective of the continuing threat that the Russians or others might intervene in the U.S. elections.
1: Yeah, I remember watching uh, Secretary Tillerson go on TV near the end of his disastrous tenure, uh, in which he, you know, said, "Well, you know, the Russians are going to play in our elections for a long time to come, and there's really nothing we can do about it." which was you know essentially an invitation to the Russians to you know come in and mess with the midterm elections and the 2020 uh, elections um, uh, there's good news and bad news you identified the bad news which is that the administration continues to not take this seriously and um, you know robustly criticize anybody who suggests that the Russians manipulated uh, the 2016 elections but the good news is that Congress is taking it seriously and we actually you know came together Republicans and Democrats to um, put up a new fund of money that went out to states to uh, solidify election systems and voting systems. Um, uh, Democrats tried to increase that money. um, uh, A few months ago, Republicans didn't on a second round, but we did um, actually come together on a first round of election security money that was used by states to make their systems uh, stronger. The tech companies have a long way to go, but they have recognized that they have a duty to be much more careful about what they're putting up and to sort out uh, foreign actors that are trying to um, uh, uh, manipulate elections through social media platforms. And so They will be better, I, I think, and more aware in 2020 than they were In 2016, so you know, I I, I think we're I think we're sort of two steps forward, one step back here, Um, and that's you know that that that's that's better news than on some other domestic fronts. Uh,
0: Well, I I guess that it is. Um, uh, We we seem to also recently the White House has announced a decision to cut back on the efforts of the Department of Homeland Security to target domestic terrorists, which is another threat that has arisen in the past few years that they don't seem to be that concerned with. Yet another in this space is um, dealing with just sort of the basic security precautions that one takes care of in order to defend against information falling in the wrong hands. And, of course, in the past week, we've seen a whistleblower appear before Elijah Cummings' committee in the House uh, and identify that 25 people, including two people, presumably Jared and Ivanka, um, uh, have security clearances in the White House that shouldn't have them. Uh, in any other period in our history, this would be a giant scandal. Um, and here it's kind of wedged in between you know, the scandal before it and the scandal after it. Uh, I, I'm just wondering what your view is on this, and you know the Republican Party seems to show a, a pretty loyal line behind the president. Uh, yet these were the issues that they once saw as their 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 most important issues, and i I'm just wondering how much longer can the Republican Party be seen as the party that doesn't care about security?
1: I, listen, I, I think this is a really important question, and I worry. Um, you know, from a political perspective, that Democrats are not you know, taking this issue as seriously as we should, because it is an opportunity to flip on its head what has historically been what we call the national security gap between Republicans and Democrats. Um, Republicans have benefited uh, presidential election after presidential election from a general belief on, the, on behalf of the American public that you can trust Republicans on the issue of national security uh, more than you can trust Democrats. And that gap is sometimes very big, 20 to 30 points. Um, we should be Able to erase that gap heading into 2020, we should be able to very clearly be able to make the case that Republicans um, now care more about loyalty to President Trump than they do the security of this nation. Um, but that requires Democrats to have actual plans uh, on the table to improve the national security of this country. Um, if not, I don't think enough to you know continue to point out the the, uh, the scandals like the security clearance uh, approval process. We also have to be able to articulate what we would do differently. But in general. Um, I think your question is how long can they get away with being the party of national security, um, as long as Democrats don't go out and proactively talk about our own vision for the world. And thus far, uh, as I watch my friends run for president, um, they are pretty singularly focused on domestic policy for all sorts of justifiable reasons. There is a um, an advantage for the taking for Democrats if we actually um, have a presidential candidate that will take this guy on on all of the ways in which he has compromised this nation's
0: security. Well, presumably, um, things you know the, the the average American may not care about the nuances of foreign policy. They may be hard pressed to find Yemen on the map. Although I think it's vitally important that the kind of critique that you've offered be brought up within the the senate but the average american presumably does care about whether or not we are secure whether what our standing is in the world and you know the last two republican presidencies gave us the war in iraq uh and now this uh capitulation to the russians attacks on nato uh capitulations and encouragement to dictators around the world uh, uh, and and what I find most extraordinary, but I'm a foreign policy guy, is a systematic effort to undermine the international system that the United States built at the end of the Second World War by not just attacking the NATO alliance, but pulling out of the Paris Accords, pulling out of TPP, um, uh, going after uh, NAFTA and other trade deals, reinstigating uh, trade wars, pulling out of parts of of the U.N. or unfunding parts of the U.N., et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and seeking to further diminish those going forward. So it does seem like there could be a top line message, which is if you want a strong America and you want an America restored to global leadership, you can't continue with Donald Trump's America.
1: I mean, you know, I I would just replay the footage from the United Nations over and over and over again. I mean, Americans, as you point out, want uh, a strong America, want an America that is respected in the world. And the fact that we are a literal laughingstock, uh, that world leaders would feel would feel so fearless of the united states that they could laugh at the american president when he speaks before the united nations speaks to you know what has uh, what has happened around the world um the second part of that though is you know there's a reason why americans are more willing to listen to america first arguments why they are sort of less interested in making investments in international um organizations it's because they're own domestic economic insecurity is um, is more real and present and more dangerous than ever before. And so, you know, I do think, you know, as much as I sometimes have given my Friends, a hard time for not talking more about national security in the context of the presidential election. Um, If you want to get Americans to be more willing to support the projection of American power outside our boundaries, you've got to have a domestic agenda that makes them uh, less crisis oriented inside this country. So um, domestic, sound domestic policy allows you to convince Americans uh, to be a little bit more muscular in terms of how they view America's role through multilateral institutions.
0: Okay, we only have a couple more minutes left, but let me pick up just on that uh, and 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 address the issue of a place where sound domestic policy and foreign policy come together, and that has to do with the southern border. You've had the President make, uh, although he's taken a step or two back from it in the past few hours, but you've had the President make a number of statements about actually closing the southern border. Of course, the border between us and Mexico, our third largest trading partner and the number two purchaser of u s. Uh, exports. Um, but also, at the same time, the administration uh, has indicated a desire to cut funding to the Central American nations from which many uh, refugees come uh, in what seems to be a very self-defeating act, which would make it harder for those countries to uh, provide the security and other conditions that would actually keep people at home there. Um, so this the situation on the border seems to be um, deteriorating, and it seems to be a card the president wants to play and maintain as a perceived threat, running up and into the election, um, and that poses a risk for us economically and some other ways. And I'm wondering what your perspective is.
1: Yeah, you know, remember the the, the president doesn't want to solve this problem, um, so you know, people look at his decision to cut off aid. Uh, to Central America and scratch their heads. Won't that make the problem worse? Won't that send more people to the border? Won't that increase the desperation that drives people to America? The answer is yes, and the answer is also that the president knows that that's exactly what it will do. Um, the president has never had any intention of passing an immigration bill. Uh, we made him incredibly generous offers at one point, offering him, you know, fifteen. Billion dollars, 20 billion dollars for the wall in exchange for protection for the dreamers, and he refused it. Um, his goal is to, you know, keep immigration um, uh, simmering as a political issue to rally his base, and uh, he will never ever come to the table on anything meaningful or comprehensive, and he will continue to take actions like the uh, withdrawal of aid to those countries to make the situation even worse. This is not about policy. This is only about politics for the president. And that pains me so to say that, um, because I have on a regular basis um, families you know in my office crying their eyes out uh, because of the devastation that comes from this deportation policy and the ability inability of dreamers to be able to have a long-term plan for success, um, but that's the reality. It's, it's 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 only it's only political to him, and so just nobody should be surprised when he does things that look counterproductive. They are intentionally counterproductive.
0: Well, it seems they're intentionally cruel to some degree. You know, he's talked today again about not wanting to have judges involved in the deportation process, and uh, we've seen the behavior of DHS on the southern border. Uh, do you think there's anything that Congress can do about, you know, the the the, the, the cruelty of U.S. policies that we're seeing in this regard? Uh,
1: not not so long as were, Mitch McConnell's in charge of the, uh, the United States Senate. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell has been Donald Trump's um, chief lieutenant in his cruel, devastating, inhumane immigration policies. Uh, Mitch McConnell today has the ability— Um, in his hands uh, to be able to um, forge a compromise on immigration, uh, to withdraw funding for the worst and most inhumane parts of Trump's agenda, but he refuses to do it. So, you know, of course, there are theoretically lots of things that Congress could do, but uh, Mitch McConnell is not going to do any of those. I I can't explain why, Um, but I, I have... I have very diminished expectations of uh, what uh, the United States Senate um, under Republican control is going to do uh, to stand up to the president on immigration, having watched them stand by as little kids have been stuck in cages, separated from their parents, and traumatized uh, with aftereffects for the rest of their life um, over the last few years.
0: Okay, so let me ask you one last question, which comes to my mind as a result of this, and that is, in two years, you could have a Democratic president, uh you can main, probably will maintain a Democratic house. You might even have Democratic Senate, although that seems like a bit of an uphill climb. How would Democrat-controlled foreign policy principally look different from Trump foreign policy?
1: Well, I, you know, th- that obviously depends on who the president of the United States is. Uh, you know, if 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 anyone was listening to me, um, <laughs> the advice I would give uh, is to dramatically change the resources available to an American president. You know, it's not a coincidence that the world seems to get more chaotic, um, whether there's a Republican or Democratic president in office. When you you know give the president a d- defense and intelligence budget that is 20 times the size of your development and democracy budget um, you're asking for trouble uh it just makes absolutely no sense that we don't have real tools to fight propaganda to help countries become energy independent of uh, places like Russia. It um, makes no sense that you know we don't have bigger capacities to um, go toe-to-toe with the Chinese as they try to use their economic aid to buy off countries' support. Um, we're spending tons of money on foreign policy, um, and it's not to say that aircraft carriers aren't important. They just aren't as important today uh, as they were 40 years ago, while the non-military tools are to tend- Times more important today uh, than they were 40 years ago, and so I would hope that a democratic foreign policy, you know, doubles or triples the size of the State Department's budget, USAID's budget, and modernizes it. Um, That doesn't actually have to come at the expense of the military budget, uh, but right now we just aren't giving the president the non-military tools to succeed in a world where the challenges to us around the world are increasingly non-military in nature.
0: Well, I certainly hope they're listening to you as well, and I think uh, uh, it's a certainty that they will be their few voices uh, in the U.S. Senate or anywhere in Washington, for that matter, who are as thoughtful or as fluent on all of the issues of foreign policy uh, as Senator Chris Murphy. And uh, for those of you listening uh, to this episode of National Security Magazine, uh, that should be uh, uh absolutely clear at this point uh, uh, as we come to the conclusion of the episode. Uh, Senator, thank you very, very much for joining us. Uh, And uh, we hope perhaps you'll be able to join us again at some point in the future as we progress on all of these issues.
1: Well, thanks for all your leadership. I'm a a, a big fan of of your work as well and uh, a real pleasure to be with you.
0: Thank you so much. If you want more information about what we're doing here at the DSR Network, go to thedsrnetwork.com, listen to Deep State Radio, listen to Washington for Beautiful People, uh, listen each week to more episodes of National Security Magazine, and coming later this week, listen to our newest podcast, Deep State Radio Live from the Comedy Cellar in New York, where we'll try to provide Yet another perspective on current events that you won't get in the mainstream uh, media, uh, uh, and that is the perspective of people who haven't lost their sense of humor yet. Uh, that may not be you, but if you listen to our episode, you may get it back. Uh, at least that's our our approach. Our, what we're trying to do here is provide people with perspectives on uh, what's going on around the world and what's going on in Washington uh, that are a little bit more in depth a little bit more thoughtful sometimes a little bit smarter and sometimes a little bit edgier which is to say more candid then you'll get someplace else so join us in the future at the dsr network thank you very much deep state radio is a production of the deep state radio network a division of trg interactive media our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.